0: Good morning, it's good to be with you all again this morning, to consider God's word, to pray to him, and to do some business. May God help us. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, before we read our text, let me... Let me open us up in a word of prayer. Our great God and our Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. And we thank you, Father, for gathering us here together for the General Assembly of ARPCA, that we might come to edify one another in our churches, that we might come to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ working itself out in our churches, in our local churches. Lord, we pray that as we come this morning to consider your holy word, that you would come and minister to us give us ears to hear and and minds and hearts to receive your word. Help us to, to hear your word heedfully. Lord, I pray that your, you would send your spirit to come and to minister to us this morning, that we might indeed be hearing the words of Christ our Savior. And I pray for help for myself, Lord, as I open up your word that you would help me to think clearly and communicate clearly uh, to your people. God, we pray for your blessing upon uh, this hour as we hear your word and, and, and pray, God, making our prayers and petitions known to you. And I pray that you would bless us indeed the rest of this, this day. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to consider with you Paul's prayer for the Colossians. Our main focus will be verses 9 through 14 of Colossians chapter 1, but I want to pick up reading in verse 1 here. In, in, verses, in verses 3 through 8, Paul gives thanks to God for the work of the gospel in the lives of these believers, these believers in this local body. And in verses 9 through 14, our main consideration, we then have Paul's pastoral prayer report. So let's go ahead and read our text. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Hear now the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you, and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who was a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also... Since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He rescued us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. By way of introduction, let me make two observations to provide a a bit of a context to this prayer report of Paul's. The the first thing to observe is Paul's relationship to the church in Colossae. Paul was not the founder of this church, nor had he ever visited this church. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he talks about never having seen these saints face to face. Nevertheless... Paul was quite well-known and influential in this church. For, if you'll remember with me, he had, he'd spent three long years in Ephesus nearby. And we read this in Acts 19. After three years in Ephesus, we read that, that all lived in Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, because of Paul's ministry there. But besides this sort of indirect, though influential relationship Paul had, Paul had enjoyed a special relationship with this church. For he begins his letter, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. As an apostle, Paul was a pastor de jure, a pastor by divine right of this local body. And so, as we consider his prayer, this is the prayer of the pastor for the local church. And so it serves something of a, of a model for our prayers for our churches. But the second thing I would like you to observe is the occasion of this letter. At this time, when Paul's writing this, Paul's in prison, perhaps Rome, and he's heard a report from Epaphras. Epaphras was probably the founder and pastor of this church. And he's heard a report of, from Epaphras about their faith hope, and love. We see this in verses 3 through 8. But Paul's also heard about some false teaching creeping into the church. Now, we don't know exactly what this false teaching was, but it was some sort of syncretistic Jewish pagan belief. And in in other words, we could say the church was being tempted to follow after the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of false religions, false Theologies. The Colossian believers were struggling to understand their relation to God and their relation to the physical and spiritual world. They had come to believe in Christ and the gospel, yet there had to be something more, something bigger, something better, some other meta-narrative, this grand narrative, a, a way of interpreting all things fundamentally, they were being tempted to a different theology, a different way of understanding God and all things in relation to God. But Paul's exhortation to them and to us is that the mind of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ is all-sufficient. All-sufficient for faith and practice, for life and and godliness, for the glory of God and man's salvation. There is no understanding beyond the mystery of the gospel. Rather, anything claiming to to be beyond the knowledge of God in Christ is not beyond it, but it's contrary to it. And so Paul prays here that the local church would come to better understand God and all things in relation to God, such that they would walk in a manner worthy of Christ to the glory of God in Christ. And so the title of my my sermon this morning is The Prayer of the Pastor, and I want to open up this text in three points. First, I want to consider the ground of his prayer. Second, the content of his prayer. What's he praying for? And third, the, the aim of his prayer. What's the goal, that, that final cause? So in the first place now, consider with me the ground of the pastor's prayer. Paul writes in verse 9, we do not cease to pray for you. And in verse 3, he says, we are praying always for you. In other words, Paul as a pastor was always and habitually praying for the church. Brothers, as we consider this text, my my chief exhortation is to model our prayer after Paul's prayer. But also, let us model our praying after Paul's praying. We do not cease to pray for you. We are always praying for you. Earnest and diligent prayer is our work. Charles Bridges on the Christian ministry, he writes, Prayer is one half of our ministry, and it gives the other half all its power and success. Without prayer, a minister is of no use to the church, nor of any advantage to mankind. We shall find that our most successful efforts for our people were the hours, not when we were speaking to them from God but when we were speaking for them to God. As we minister then to God's people in our great weakness, may we come to know this truth more deeply and so model our praying after Paul's praying. But Paul says, for this reason we pray for you. What what reason? What's what's the ground of his prayer? Well, he says this in verse 9, but what is it? Well, it's, it's everything he just gave thanks to God for in verses 3 through 8. The word of truth in verse 5. The word of truth has been implanted within their hearts, mixed with that fruitifying virtue of faith, and is now bearing fruit in the world. He gives thanks for their faith, hope, and love, those three theological virtues wrought in them by the power of the Holy Spirit who's been poured out into their hearts. Twice he mentions their love. That principle of, of all the virtues, that chief grace which distinguishes the church from the world. All of this is the powerful and redeeming work of the triune God. Paul gives thanks to God the Father for their faith in the Son and their love in the Spirit. The eternal plan of redemption, that pactum salutis, accomplished in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, is now being brought to completion in the lives of these particular people. The salvific work of the eternal and triune God has terminated on these sinners through the divine missions of the Son and the Spirit sent from the Father to bring them back to God. Paul elaborates on this Trinitarian work of redemption in verses 12 through 14 and this too is his the ground of his prayer and he uses specific redemptive historical language here look at the text if you will verses 12 through 14 he gives thanks to the father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light he rescued us from the domain of darkness he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is Exodus language. All of this is Exodus language. We've been rescued and redeemed. From where? From exile, from the domain of darkness, unto where? To the kingdom of his beloved son. At what price? The blood of the son in whom we have redemption for, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You'll remember with me, Israel was in the light, as the light led them out of darkness, that kingdom of darkness of Egypt. And what's more, Israel in the Exodus was then constituted a kingdom Called God's son, and was therefore qualified to receive an inheritance as sons. If children, then heirs, Paul says. If children, then heirs, Paul says. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. See, all of this is Exodus language. The church of Jesus Christ has been exodus, been redeemed, not by a Passover lamb. Not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of the eternal Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sins and who brings us back to God. We ourselves had fallen into darkness. But in the fullness of time, the Son of Righteousness, the light of the world, came not to be hidden under a basket, but rather to be revealed so that the mystery of the kingdom might come to light. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his exodus, right, in his death and resurrection, he redeems us from our spiritual darkness and death and brings us into light and life. Perfect, eternal communion with the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. So the ground of Paul's prayer to God is God, who he is in himself, what he's done through the Son, by the Spirit. Through the divine missions of the Son and the Spirit, the triune God is bringing all things back to himself. This is what he says in verses 19 and 20 here. For it was the Father's good pleasure, through him, Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Through the Son, by the Spirit, God is working this reconciliation, this this retitus, this, this return, this exodus. For all things are from him, through him, and to him. He's the first and the last. The beginning and the end of all things. And where does this return to God begin? Where does this exodus play out? Where is man's end fulfilled in coming to see God? Where else but in the life of the local church? Consider with me now the content of, past, of the pastor's prayer for the church. We see this in the second half of verse 9. Paul says, We do not cease to pray for you and to ask, well, to ask for what? That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, the big question in this verse is what does Paul mean by the knowledge of his will? It's interesting, in reading modern New Testament commentators with their, their isolated niche expertise in New Testament exegesis, if you, if you read them, you'll see, if you read enough of them on this text, you'll find that they make this distinction in the will of God, God's will, between the objective knowledge of God's will and the subjective knowledge of God's will. So they'll say this, Objective knowledge of his will is that knowledge of what God has done objectively in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this objective knowledge of his will is, is things that we ought to believe. But some commentators will say, no, it's the subjective knowledge of his will. that this, this knowledge of how we are to live. In other words, things to be done. And these modern New Testament commentators, they'll, they'll argue against each other's each other in this way, uh, which, which one is it? They're kind of taking these sides, and I think that's partly how you publish commentaries. But, but the, what the interesting thing is, is that the older commentators felt no need to choose between the two. We can distinguish these things, but we must not separate them. One older commentator writes, the object of Christian knowledge is the will of God, in the unity of that will in creation, law, and redemption. Hence, in the visible and invisible, in the temporal and eternal, in the moral and intellectual, both what was designed in creation and redemption and what was commanded in word as precept. In other words, The knowledge of God's will is theology. It's knowledge of the law and the gospel. Things to be believed and things to be done. It's theoretical and it's practical. It's faith and practice. The knowledge of God's will says something about everything. Theology says something about everything. For theology is wisdom, wisdom from above. Franciscus Junius defines theology this way. Theology is wisdom concerning divine matters. What divine matters? God and all things in relation to God. The pastor's prayer then is that the church would be filled with theology, the knowledge of God and all things in relation to God. The pastor's prayer is that the church would be filled with theology, would understand theology, practice theology, grow in theology, that all of the church's life and our lives would be theological. That is, ordered by God, for God. Paul helps us here. He identifies the causes of theology in his prayer, the causes of theology. We'll consider the final cause in the last point and as the aim of his prayer, but consider here. Observe with me here. Observe with me the efficient cause or the source of this knowledge. Paul prays that the Colossian believers would be filled with knowledge. That's a divine passive verb, that they would be filled. Be filled by whom? By God. God is the efficient cause, the agent, the source who gives us this theological knowledge. Moreover, he tells us, it's spiritual wisdom and understanding. I wish we could capitalize that S there. It's spiritual wisdom and understanding. God the Spirit is the divine person who inseparably communicates or creates this knowledge within us as he's the divine consummator, the the perfecter. But observe with me here also the exemplar cause, the, the pattern of theology. He says theology is the knowledge of his will. Our knowledge is patterned after his knowledge. Our wisdom is derived from divine wisdom. God the archetype, that, that pattern in the ultimate sense. God, the archetype, he fashions a creaturely copy of his knowledge and communicates it to us. And so our knowledge of his will is set in order to, it's, it's patterned after the divine knowledge. Paul prays then that the local church would be filled with theology from God, by God, in the image of God. He prays that we would be filled with the wisdom of God and all things under the aspect of God. That we would know what to believe and what to do. As we live this life as exodus pilgrims on the way to the fatherland, where we will no longer see in a mirror dimly, but come to see then face to face. This ought to be our prayer for ourselves, for our churches, and for one another's churches. That God would fill us and our faithful brethren with theology, that queen of all sciences, that wisdom of things most excellent, eternal, Necessary heavenly things, the alone wisdom which leads man to eternal blessedness, the wisdom which teaches man how to live well and how to live happily, what Paul calls the doctrine which accords with godliness. And where does God teach this doctrine? Except in the school of Christ, his church. The church is where heaven meets earth, where we take our eyes off of the earthly, the contingent, the temporal things, and we lift up our hearts and minds to contemplate and to gaze upon the eternal, the necessary things, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's the place where we come together in his name to hear from him and to worship him where we come together and there he is with us in our midst. The church then is the temple of the living God where we come to see the invisible God. In verse 9, Paul prays that we might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul here is picking up on what we might call a certain Old Testament formula. He uses five specific words together in this one verse. Spirit, filled, knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Only three other times in the Bible are all five of these words used together. Twice in speaking of Bezalel in Exodus chapter 31, and thirty-five, and once speaking of Hiram, in First Kings chapter seven. And what do these two men have in common? I'm going to tell you. The first was appointed by Moses, to build the tabernacle. The second, was appointed by Solomon to build the temple. Paul is using temple-building language here. And isn't this fitting? To use temple building language while praying for the churches being built up in theology? What is theology but that rapt vision of God? Where does man come to see God but in the temple of God? Where he dwells with us, where he makes himself known, where he blesses us with his presence, with the light of his glory. Was this not the goal then? The temple, was this not the goal of the first exodus, right? Let my people go. It doesn't stop there, according to Charleston Heston, right? It doesn't stop there. Let my people go. No, it goes on. The Lord says, let my people go that they might serve me, that they might worship me. Where? How? Israel was to be a kingdom of priests worshiping God in the temple. But where Israel failed, Christ succeeded. And now, the Lord Jesus Christ is building his kingdom of priests in the local church. The prayer of the pastor is that God would build his heavenly temple in the local church. As we are caught up in the rapt vision of God, in the presence of God, for the glory of God which brings us in the last place to the aim or the goal or that final cause of the pastor's prayer. Quick summary here. Paul prays, Paul's prayer for the church is grounded in the redemption of Jesus Christ. The church then, we, are those who have experienced the second exodus with Christ and have been made priests in his kingdom. And so Paul prays that the church as the temple of God would grow in the knowledge of his will. That is, we would grow in theology the vision of God in all things in relation to God as we live in the presence of God. Which brings us now to verses 10 and 11. This here is a, it's a lengthy purpose or result clause stating the aim of his prayer. And Paul lists five things here as the goal. That the church would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Bear fruit in every good work. Increase in the knowledge of God. Be strengthened with all power according to his his glorious might. Giving thanks to the Father with joy. Now, we can view these things under two main heads, and I'm going to do that for sake of brevity here. We can view these five things under two main heads, and what are they? Namely, the two chief ends of theology. What are these two ends? The glory of God and man's salvation. First, he prays for the glory of God, the ultimate end of theology. All of these things tend to the glory of God in the church, don't they? To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to bear fruit in good works, to increase in theological knowledge, to persevere as pilgrims on the way, to give thanksgiving and praise to God. All of these tend to the glory of God. The church is a creature of God's grace, and the end of his grace is God. But second, Paul prays for our salvation. He prays for man's highest end. And what are these but five ways in which we live theologically, in the presence of God, in the fear of God. These are five ways in which we live for God through Christ. Our salvation is is not simply justification. Complete salvation is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, in holiness, righteousness, perfect union and communion with the triune God. It's to live like theologians, the image of God, walking in the fear of the Lord, keeping his commandments. And so we see the aim of Paul's prayer for the church is really the chief end of man. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever, starting now. The end of Paul's prayer is the end of man. God's glory and man's salvation But these two ends, they do not differ in substance. Listen to what Petrus von Maastricht writes. Speaking of the end of theology, the glory of God and man's salvation, he says, these two ends do not differ so much in their substance as in our reason. Since our salvation does not consist in anything but the glorification of God. When, by our union and communion with God and our enjoyment of him, in which our salvation consists, God is by that very fact recognized and celebrated as our highest good and ultimate end. These two ends do not differ in substance, for God has chosen to glorify himself in our salvation. And so as we come to achieve our end, our highest good and ultimate end, which is God himself, in that he's chiefly glorified. Paul's prayer is grounded in God. God in himself and God in his works. The content of his prayer is that the church would be filled with the wisdom of God and all things in relation to God. The aim of his prayer is that the church would live for God through Christ. That is, to live like theologians in communion with God for the glory of God. I can't think of a higher prayer than this. A more ultimate and final prayer. For the end of man, our end, is theology. To contemplate God and all things in relation to God as we are caught up in the rapt vision of God. This is our chief end, our highest good. God Himself to see Him, to love Him, to possess Him, to worship Him, and to live for Him. And where in the world this has happened, except in the local church. How foolish then to look to the world for wisdom or happiness as the Colossians were tempted to do, as we are tempted to do. The gracious purposes of God and the highest ends of man are fulfilled in the local church. There is no bigger meta narrative. There is no greater interpretation or understanding of man and the world. Theology alone is sufficient for these things. Heavenly, ultimate, eternal, happy things. Theology alone is sufficient. And Paul communicates this very idea five times in these verses... Paul uses the word all or every. Pas pont upon, right, Greek guys? He uses the word all or every five times. It's all spiritual wisdom, all respects, every good work, all power, all steadfastness. What's the point? Theology is all sufficient. Sufficient for what? Our highest end. Paul alludes to one more Old Testament text in verse 10. And he does it as well in verse 6. But Paul alludes to one more Old Testament text in verse 10. He prays that we would bear fruit and increase. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Bear fruit. Increase. Theology is sufficient for what? our highest end, the fulfillment of that primordial command given to our first parents. What the first Adam could not do, the second Adam did. And he's still doing it. As God's glory fills the earth in and through the local church, his garden temple and so to conclude let our praying be modeled after Paul's praying earnestly diligently this is our work and let our prayer be modeled after Paul's prayer can you think of a bigger prayer what's more ultimate than this what's, what's higher what's more excellent Than theology. For the end of man is God, theology, and the end of theology is more theology. May Paul's prayer be our prayer for our churches. For this is the end of man, the glory of God and man's salvation. How does how does the preacher end the book in Ecclesiastes? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, and keep his commandments, for that is man's all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you, God, for your condescension to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that in him we might come to know you more fully, that he might reveal God to us for for the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in him. And not only that he would reveal you to us, but that he would redeem us back to you. Lord, we pray that as we journey on in this world as pilgrims on our way to the fatherland, that you would grow us up in our theology. And for us pastors here, Lord, use us as weak instruments to communicate theology. That we might bring our people, by your spirit, of course, to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, this is our great need, our great hope, our chief end, the chief end of our existence, to see you. Lord, give us a greater knowledge. Give us a greater wisdom. Give us a greater love. Perfect our knowledge in our affections. Lord, draw us to yourself that we might come to, to apprehend you, to possess you in love, in the, in, the, in the love even that we have in the Spirit. Lord, how we thank you that your Son and your Spirit do indwell, indwell within us, and that even now as pilgrims we enjoy this, this perfect communion with you, O God, and we pray that you would preserve us and strengthen us according to your glorious might until that day when we see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ face to face. Lord, bless our churches. Fill us with your presence, fill us with the knowledge of you, Lord, and help us to live like theologians. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a few minutes now for a time of prayer.